Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the privilege of speaking with David Joyce. David is currently the head of athletic performance at the Greater Western Sydney Giants of the Australian Football League. He has worked in professional rugby at the club and international level in both the United Kingdom and Australia, as well as in club and international football in the English Premier League and in Turkey. He's been a part of two Olympic cycles for Team GB at the Beijing Olympics in 2008 and for Team China at the London Olympics in 2012. He has published two books on integrated high performance, high performance training for sports and sports injury prevention and rehabilitation. He's a highly respected performance professional, and I'm honored to have him on the show today. He's also a new dad. Welcome, David. Thanks, Scotty. Happy birthday for the other day as well. Oh, thank you very much. And I guess knowing that you have a five-month-old, my first question out of the gate is, how's the sleep situation? Well, she's actually, she's been, she's been really good. So clearly we're getting a little bit less sleep than what we used to, which to be honest, was not that much, but um, (laughs) thankfully Matilda's been playing ball and, and um, my wife has been fantastic at at, at getting up in the middle of the night to feed her if required, but she's just starting to sleep through now. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's good. It's, it's quite an adventure. Well, uh, working in pro sports, I mean, I worked in pro hockey for a long time and I actually had my daughter when I was 45 in my last year in the league. And I know it was uh, quite taxing. Usually I don't get into this part of life right away, but you know, how has that changed to fatherhood while being in, in uh, a really intense world, really demanding world been for you? Yeah, well, Matilda was um, born in the one week uh, in the middle of the season where we get <laughs> where we don't have a game, the bye week. So you right planned that, very, didn't you? <laughs> oh, right, right from the very beginning, she was a high performance baby, you know. And um, and um, oh, look, people ask if it's changed my life. I don't think it's changed my life, but it's certainly given me a different filter to to look through. And um, you know, when you have a um, a tough day at work or whatever, and then you get home and um, you, Normally, I might might get home and just want to just chill out, but but now you know you you can't. You've got responsibilities um, for for a little person that can't look after themselves, and um, my wife needs a bit of a, a chop out as well. So all those things mean that you 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 probably have. I've got a different priority to what I what I used to. So mm-hmm. I think that's fairly common in what what people tell me in. 
uh, in our field, Scotty. And um, but you know she's been she's been delightful, and it, it makes me question you know what I what I'm living for, and and sort of the the particular values that you'd like to be able to pass on, and makes you well. It's made me probably think a little bit more about you know, being a role model for someone that, you know, you shaped right from the very beginning rather mm-hmm. than a role model for someone that you shaped from the age of 18 or whenever they enter the footy club, do you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. that, what's been, that what's been the biggest surprise for you? Like what, what didn't you expect? Um, interesting question. Uh, I, I don't. I don't know, like, because I, I didn't go in with any firm expectations about, you know, what was going to happen or, or, or whatever. Um, I think, <clears throat> yeah, I, I find that difficult to answer, Scott. I, I what I what I've been delighted with, if I can ask a diff, uh, answer a different question, is is. Um, so I'll get up in the morning and, and if she's awake, you know, you're just greeted with this amazing smile and, and you know, and it's, it's, always, it's almost made me, because it makes me feel so good when I see that. It, it, it's made me think, well, maybe I, I need to be even brighter in the mornings to, to um, brighten up the lives of those that are around me, you know what I mean? So I don't know if it translates, but... Um, um, her, her capacity for, for for dropping the bundle when she's tired or hungry and then just getting over that so quickly has been brilliant. Awesome. Uh, so take me back a little bit. Where where did you grow up and what was life growing up for you like? Was it uh, yes. standard sort of fair or did you have an unusual um, childhood? No, I think probably fairly standard. I um, I grew up in country Victoria, which is outside of Melbourne in the, the southern part of Australia. Um, Dad was in the army. Mum was a mum. And then we moved up to – I've got two sisters. And then we, we moved up to Canberra, which is the capital of Australia. Um, not many people know that. Many Australians don't even know that. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, um, and then we um, – yeah, so, you know, just – just, just fairly, fairly standard upbringing. Mm. I think I was, I was blessed that that mum um, and dad were both hard workers, very supportive of what we wanted to do. You know, we got driven to every sports um, game imaginable, and um, so I was given really good values by my parents. And then when I uh, when was I left home when I was probably 17 or 18 to go to university up in Queensland. I did a, um, a physiotherapy degree and then um, started working as a physio. But my, my background as a physio was probably much more – some physios are really gifted with their hands, you know, and they, they claim to be able to feel when C7 is rotated on C6 and things like that. And I've never been like that. I've never been that gifted. And, and maybe it's because I just – inherently there was something stopping me believing that you could and um, I was much more down the the load management and strength um, side of physical therapy so to speak so um, you know I played football and I've always just been into strength and exercise and and load and those sorts of things so I I, I did a, a master's in sports physiotherapy and then I did a master's in strength and conditioning what got so, you into sport in general? Was it uh, your parents' influence or was it just the in- influence of, of being around other kids? 
Yeah, I don't think it was my parents' influence. Certainly, my parents' support, mm. um, but my parents were were active, but not particularly sporty. But they were very supportive of what us kids wanted to do, and I was just fairly standard Aussie kid, you know. That I, I absolutely adored football. I absolutely adored cricket. I absolutely adored soccer. Um, you know, so um, my parents sort of indulged that, and all of us kids, there's myself and my two sisters, were active and sporty, and and those sorts of things. So it was, it was, it's 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 my it's my life. It's it's pretty much the only thing I know. So what what attracted to you to the physiotherapy degree? If if you weren't into sort of the manual therapy side of things, what was the stimulus to go into that rather than say going into kinesiology or physiology yeah. or strength conditioning? Yeah. Um, I really I really like problem solving, mm. and I really like. The con- so so when I was, you know, end of high school or, or whatever, I, I probably didn't know that strength and conditioning existed. Mm. But I certainly knew that physio existed in, in professional sport. So that was probably the segue for me to get into that. But once, you, once you're in it, um, the whole world of physiotherapy where you think it might just be working with sports injuries then opens up to you and I had no idea that it works. You know, you work with, with old people or with, with babies or with people in intensive care and things like that. And I love the, I love the problem solving aspect of it, but, but certainly my, my background and my passions, my drive were, were always towards that orthopedic and sports side of things. And once, once I was sort of working down that road, I then realized that, geez, well, um, physio is great, but we don't know, a quarter of the story in terms of performance. Mm. Uh, people that understand performance better are the strength and conditioners, the physiologists, the biomechanists, those sorts of people. Um, and so I just hung out loads more with them and that was kind of my my entry into that um, stream of performance, so mm. to speak. So, um, so while, you, while you were in college, did you uh, work – with some of the college sports teams or what was the sort of domino or segue moment for you to get into sport with what you yeah. So, so college sport is not particularly big in Australia at all. Okay. You know, it's not like in, in North America. So um, I was playing football. That was, um, you know, I was making, making ends meet by doing that and, and working in restaurants. So I, I didn't go down that typical, that typical route that I hear so many North American coaches of, you know, um, becoming a, a graduate assistant in the in the weights room or, or whatever. That 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 avenue when I was going through didn't really exist. Okay. Uh, and so so really my after I graduated, um, I was still playing football but working in the, the hospitals because I wanted to get a really sound understanding of what it was like to be really sick for mm. when when really sick because I felt that if I could understand that I would be able to understand you know um I'll be able to it'd be a a different skill set to to what other people would have if they just worked with a well population um particularly with trauma management and things like that and then it was only after that that um, you know, I started to, I went over overseas, I worked in England and I was working with a big rugby club called Saracens, um, one of the, the European powerhouses. And that's when I probably got a bit more involved with the strength and conditioning side of things because it was always my, um, 
passion myself. You know, you read Men's Health and, you know, all the, all the magazines and those sorts of things. Um, but then when you're introduced much more to a, to a high-performance environment, you go, oh, well, that's actually where I want to go. So, um, and that was probably the start of my, my flourishing in, in that realm of things and I, I was able to combine my, my physio knowledge with my, my burgeoning strength and conditioning and, and load management knowledge and then sort of evolve from there. And what I can see was there was an avenue to exploit or sorry, not to exploit, but there was an avenue that wasn't particularly well serviced by physios understanding performance, but performance people understanding pathology. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, oh yeah, um, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of that it's that middle part of the Venn diagram that yeah. is not well explored. Mm-hmm. So um, that was that was the avenue that I that I went down. So I'm probably a mile wide and an inch deep. Um, whereas a lot of people are an inch wide and a mile deep, but um, mm-hmm. yeah. What, uh, what what what? Tell me the story of going to Europe and working in high level sport. Like, what was that segue in your life like? What was what was the feeling of leaving and going to the UK and then being in a in a high performance environment? What was difficult and what was not so difficult about that? Yeah. Um, so I was. I'm I'm lucky that I'm I'm really well travelled now. But I I left Australia for the first time when I was 26. Mm. You know, we didn't particularly come from we didn't have any money when we were kids or anything like that. And 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 Australia is a long bloody way from anywhere as you know. Um, and so just once I'd finished playing football, I decided to to go and see the areas that my dad grew up in. My dad was from from England, the northeast of England, so. Um, I had a British passport, so I went over with the aim of being probably over there for 18 months because when you're 26 and you haven't travelled, you think Australia is the best place in the world and, you know, you go over there for an experience but then you come back home and you, you settle down. But the reality is I love Australia but there is so much more the world's got to offer and before you knew it, I was there for sort of 12 years between mm-hmm. um, England and Turkey and Spain and and, and China, and I was, I was really fortunate to work in lots of lots of places, um, all, all the way along in in elite sport. You know, just getting progressing progressing my area of responsibility and and the the, the, the nature of the roles and, and things like that. So um, yeah, it's it's been going overseas is one of the the probably the five or so great great professional decisions that i've made and and i would encourage anyone to to do the same tell me about the um cultural differences that you experienced i mean you talked about three different countries that really are diametrically different you've got the you well you've got australia uk which do have a relationship then china and turkey um mm. what 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 struck you about the differences uh, in those cultures in the in the room in the in the performance training environment especially yeah so there's there's probably not a lot of difference between australia and the uk as you as you sort of alluded to but the uk was my start of really high performance so mm. I, that was where i i cut my teeth in the um in the in the gym and you know in in high performance environments. Um, now moving from there to Turkey, Turkey was culturally an incredible experience, 
Um, but you know, I was working in professional soccer with an enormous soccer club called Galatasaray. Um, and um, whilst it was an extraordinary experience culturally and socially, the, the, the high-performance structure and, and um, background was, was pretty poor, very low. Mm. Um, what I learned there was well, we, we had four head coaches, four, four managers sacked in, in a season. So, so you know, it's just it's madness, you know. And but what what I what I took from that was like it was great on my CV because it's a big famous club. But I, I really learned about influence and mm-hmm. and how to make the most of opportunities that you're given. Because my what I wanted to do in professional soccer in Turkey was to get the players fit and strong. Because clearly that's what I think is the right thing to do. Um, but that's very different to the Turkish approach, which is to you know, play a bit of football and then have cups of tea. Um, <laughs> and I and I I battled with that, but I also battled with people not understanding that. So it, it really got it got me interested in how to influence, mm. you know, and 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 you get you unfortunately you get really good and practiced at it simply because you've you've got to do it four times in a season with with coaches that come in with their own ideas about playing soccer and and drinking tea and each time you've got to then you know say well actually this is why we need to be strong and fit um and just at the time when the the head coach would trust me and we'd start to get results um then he'd get sacked and out of his team we have to do the same thing again so I, i reckon i'm pretty adept at doing that now um, convincing people who need to be convinced. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. But that's, I mean, everything we do is is a sell, isn't it? So mm-hmm. whether we're trying to sell to to people that don't understand what we do or we're trying to sell a concept to a player or, you know, to our, our children or whatever it is, it's all about, um, you know, imparting or, or getting people to change their behaviour. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So... I look back on that as as a really in, um, important um, breeding ground for for that skill for me. What and did you learn? I, what did you learn about yourself in that process when you had to sort of be be really excited about what it was you were doing, but at the same time have to harness it and restructure it? What What did you learn about yourself? Yeah, I learned between Turkey and China. I learned a, a lot about patience. Mm. And I learned a lot about understanding where other people are at rather than just go, rather than be arrogant and say, this is the right way to do it. It's my way or the highway. You've got to meet someone where they're at. Um, and and, and I've, I've, I've never, ever been arrogant, but my, my approach prior to then was probably naive. Do you mm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And thinking that everyone thought the same way as I did. Um, so I, I reckon I, I learned a lot about patience and influence and, and you know, the first, first time when you're, you're meeting with people is it's kind of, am I allowed to swear on this show? Sure, go ahead. Yeah, it's sort of, um, <laughs> kind of, kind of the, the approach is, see all, hear all, say fuck all. Do you know what I mean? Like, just, um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And whereas previously I'd be really keen to to impart, whereas Turkey and China taught me much more about absorbing. Mm. 
and then processing, um, which which has, has served me well moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then moving forward into China. Well, China, you you absolutely need to be patient and you need to develop relationships. I was across, you know, twenty odd different sports um, as um, performance coach and and rehab specialist and physio and and things. So you, you have to develop um, good, sophisticated, and various different ways of of influencing people that don't speak your language. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's and there is just so many ways that you can get impatient. There's so many ways and so many instances where you do get frustrated, um, but being able to influence when frustrated or angry gets you nowhere. Like you, you simply can't do it. Mm-hmm. So it was really both those. When I re, when I reflect on it, um, and your question is asking is making me reflect on it as well, Scott. But it's it it's it's taught me. Um, patience and grace under fire, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm interested just from outside looking in, not that I've had that level of experience with countries like Turkey or China, but um, I did a, f- a fair amount of work in the Middle East for a project that I did. And from outside looking in, you know, you would have sort of the tradi- traditionalist uh, football model in, in England, then you would go to Turkey. And m- my experience with the mi- Middle East, I'm not sure if Turkey's sort of like that, but the culture is very much, um, very much different in terms of the, the belief systems, intensities, things like that around life and, and how things work, the religions, et cetera, associated with that. And then you go to China where, you know, sport in some ways is almost a way out from a cultural perspective from, from you know po- impoverishment. So, what did you notice about the athletes in those two different, those three different zones that was that really stood out to you? The, one of the great things about China is that um, individual success, even even in an individual sport, let's just say table tennis or swimming or rowing or or whatever, um, the individual athlete will always give credit to those people that made him or her the champion. Mm. So they are seen as the figurehead but not the sole recipient of glory. Mm. So so if they could fit their coach from under nines and their doctor from under 13s and all those sorts of things on the medal dies, they would because they're really humble about this, this medal, this success, belongs to everyone that has helped me along the way. Mm. You know? um, and that's something that I've not seen replicated. I'm not saying it doesn't exist elsewhere, but I've not seen it replicated to the same extent. Uh, I think athletes in Australia tend to be um, a bit more thankful of the support that they've had along the way. I've not worked in, in North America for, for any great length of time, so I can't comment on that. But I think there's still... There's still quite a lot of people that feel that, um, if certainly in professional sport in the UK and Turkey, is that any success that they've got is theirs and theirs alone. Mm. Um, so I thought I thought that was a that was a lovely thing that I learned about the the China system. Mm. So if we look at the concept of performance with your you know your lens of the physiotherapist, what um, what was it like 
then and has it changed to now in terms of people's that concept you talked about bridging the gap. I have my own personal viewpoints because that is my world as well. But I'm curious to see from your perspective what you've seen change in terms of in the time that you've been in your career um, between those two worlds. And do you see them coming together or do you see them still relatively apart from one another? Uh, I think it depends on the environment that you're in. But certainly wherever I've been, I've chosen because they are either aligned or aligning in that process of. Because my, my firm belief is there's no aspect of performance that exists as an island because the, um, the, a, a dietitian can't do his or her job well without having an understanding of strength periodization. Mm-hmm. A strength coach can't do his or her job well without understanding um, lumbar spine mechanics. A physio can't do his or her job well without understanding um, running mechanics. So um, I think as we've gone over my tenure in this sort of industry, which is going on for 20 years now, physios have got a better, um, or certainly in the elite environment, have got a much better understanding of load and load management. Um, Strength um, coaches and physiologists have got a better understanding of pathology. I think there's still a way to go, by the way. But we're moving away from a siloed approach Mm. into much more of a collaborative approach where there's lots of eyes looking at a similar sort of problem. Um, But I'm not not naive enough to think that that we're, we're there yet and I'm not naive enough to think that there are there are not other places that exist where it is still a very much a fragmented siloed approach, which I think for my, in my, my understanding and my experience is a breeding ground for, uh, for conflict mm-hmm. because there is there, when you don't have an integrated approach, there are, there, are, there are much, there are lines of responsibility and, and demarcations of of where someone's role stops and someone's um, I'm probably not explaining that quite so well, but um, certainly I've seen over the over the journey there's there's a much closer alignment between the various stakeholders in performance is that is that similar to what you say or yeah i mean like you said it's uh it's different in every environment and it often often is kind of pinwheeled by kind of the leadership in the in the environment if you have uh an open-minded leadership and that usually starts with either your your chief physician or your chief therapist or what have you and how they drive sort of that integration or not integration uh you know, you're kind of stuck with uh, the perspective that they have because, as you know, in pro sports, uh, there is an egocentric reality associated to the environment and it, yeah. and it can sometimes, unfortunately, stagger or, or stop that integration and that re- that connection amongst the parties. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, actually, what you see as sort of the, if you could pick one, two, three things that you've seen that are... Um, stumbling blocks to people working well together in that environment or connecting and understanding one another what do you, what do you see them as what can we change if if if, if to, to put it in a different way yeah um i've not i've not really thought about 
this in terms of one, two, three, but what springs to mind is um, is ego slash insecurity. Um, the second thing is ignorance. And the third thing is lack of alignment. So I'm a strong believer that workplace conflicts and probably all relationship conflicts occur because there's a lack of alignment or a lack of expectation or a lack of alignment of expectations. Hmm. So... If I'm expecting, if I'm a strength coach and I'm expecting someone to lift heavy today, um, uh, I can I could get really annoyed with a physio who wants to do a thousand glute exercises as part of rehab, and 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 the physio goes, yeah, but I need them to turn on their glute meat or whatever it is, and the and the strength coach goes, yeah, but I need them to lift heavy in the you know in um, we've got back squats today or whatever it is. Um, both of them inherently are, 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 are good people and they've got, um, uh, they might have the right reasons for doing what they do, but there's a lack of alignment, a lack of expectation, clarity. Mm. Yeah, so that's the thing. Ego and insecurity, well, I think that is the basis of just a, you know, most conflicts in in the world. Um <laughs> Um, and ig- ignorance as well. <laughs> That's right. And funnily enough, ignorance is the easiest one to fix mm. because um, that's just a matter of education, mm. you know. Um, if, if, um, if the strength coach doesn't understand about the impact of plyometrics on Achilles tendinopathy, well, that's, that's, that's pretty simple. You know, if they're a good person, you um, you explain it and you, you educate and that's a learning point for him or her, then, you know, it stops being ignorant. Um, so the, the first the first and the last are the hardest ones, which is the, the ego slash uh, insecurity. And that, that requires a really good manager to, to, to work that out. Um and then, and then, obviously, the um, the lack of alignment of expectations. So, um, so I would a- I would ask you then, like, what um, when you look at what you're like, you're the head of athletic performance for a professional football team. Yeah. Um, what what in getting this role? How have you gone into it? And, and address those three things in essence so that you can have a, a well-oiled performance environment. Yeah, yeah. So to give the, the listeners some clarity, my role is head of athletic performance. So that under me or the, the team I get to work with is strength and conditioning, um, uh, sports science, sports medicine, some analytics, nutrition and dietetics, psychology, um, recovery, the box and dice, which is is there to equip the player or to, to get the player to be able to carry out the game plan, so to speak. Um, so I've, I've got a staff of, of 23. So it's a big staff. Not all of them are full-time. I've probably got 14 or 15 full-timers. So it's a big staff. Mm. One of the one of the important things that I did when I when I arrived at the club going on for four and a half years ago was to say, okay, we don't we no longer have a sports medicine department. We no longer have a strength and conditioning department. We've got an athletic performance. And we are all together. And whilst that was probably semantic and symbolic, 
it meant that there was a common unifying um, structure, so mm-hmm. to speak. Then what we did was we, we agreed upon a vision that we wanted to strive towards. And our vision was um, to be the, um, the most physically dominant team in the, in the competition's history. And then underpinning that was giving training hours back to the coaches. So we wanted to maximise player availability. So what that did, if that was the overall goal, that shifted the goal of being um, uh, from the, the strength coaches and they, their, their aim solely was, you know, bench press scores or squat numbers um, to going, well, we want to get players on the field, not only short-term but long-term. So it framed the thinking that squats and bench press are important for physical resilience they're important for physical strength and power but i'm not going to have someone injured in the gym for the sake of pursuing a, a, a one kilo um, a pb mm. because that that undermines what we're trying to do which is to get your best players on the park but equally physios who have got this reputation of being handbrakes and can be a little bit more a little bit too conservative no, 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 just do less, do less, do less. Actually, their, their thinking then had to be reframed to go, well, actually we need to do a little bit more in some instances because we're trying to maximise player availability, mm-hmm. not necessarily minimise injuries because, do you know what, it's easy to minimise injuries, you just don't train, but then you get beaten every game. So there is this balance that you needed to do. So we needed to agree on what our mission statement was. Um, and, then, and then basically you, you need to assess the staff with their competencies and their capabilities, so trying to get rid of their ignorance side of things. And then you go, well, this is how we're going to work. Everyone hopefully is on the bus. Uh, I'm going to give you 12 months to see if you enjoy the journey. Um, and some people will get off the bus and that's no slight on them as people. They just realise that that's not for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what happens is you start to to get the people that have got the capacity to 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 be on that journey, and then when when um, when vacancies arise, you recruit appropriately. So over the course of three years, you have people that are all singing on the same um, hymn sheet are all aligned with their thinking. That's not to say we don't have conflicts. It's not to say we don't have difficulties. But overall, we've got people that are uh, have subscribed to the vision and the mission. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that answer mm-hmm. the question? Abs- absolutely. Um, two-sided question to that. I mean, that the position you hold right now is one that I would say is a burgeoning position in performance sport. It didn't always exist uh, for a long time. And you're starting to see organizations hire people. I'm curious uh, about the process under which you were able to um, bear that fruit or to create that position. Um, and I'm also interested, the second part of the question, which maybe I'll have to circulate back to in case you forget it, but it's really how you are, because the biggest complaint of many people in performance environments is they can oftentimes get the so-called performance professionals together 
but it's linking that to the coaching staff mm-hmm. and having them all on the same page. So to that point, you know, so one, how do you, how do you get this role and, and, and how does that uh, appear for you? And then two, how do you, how do you bring it and connect the coaches into that world? Yeah. So, um, so another one of my, um, my better uh, professional decisions was to um, to do my master's in strength and conditioning um, because whilst I had some knowledge of the field, and I, and I did this, you know, 10 years ago, whatever it was, um, uh, what it gave me was a legitimacy to be able to have informed conversations and respect respected conversations with high achievers in that field. So mm. I, I did a lot of coaching outside of physio. So not, not just clear, but I was, I was strength coaching. Um, and it, so, so I had credibility in that field and I had credibility in the, in the physio field, which meant that I could have informed conversations with both sides. I could see where the areas of tension between both sides were mm. And then hopefully be able to solve or bring people together to solve them. Um, and it's kind of the, the reason why why we did those the, the two books, which are, are clearly uh, aligned at the integrated professional, particularly the second one. Um, now, I think because of my background, I and I, I believe that I was one of the very first people to hold a master's in sports medicine and a master's in strength and conditioning. Um, I think there was, I was lucky that there was some decision makers and you know, club chairman, CEO that saw that as being a, um, a benefit. So I was able to create this kind of role, which is the head of performance. Um, now, interestingly, and it sort of goes back to the second part of your question as well, Scott, um, when when the role was offered and they said, oh, you know, you can call yourself whatever you want, you can write your own job description, all these sorts of things, um, there were a few people that were head of performance, but I, I, I railed against that because I actually think the head of performance is the senior coach. My job is the head of athletic performance and I, because performance, as I said earlier, there's no, there's no aspect of performance which exists as an island. So I could have... Um, I could have the, the 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 fittest, most resilient team that we finish mid table because tactically or technically we're not particularly good. Mm. So again, it gets down to semantics, but I think my purview is athletic performance. Um, so I was I was lucky enough to be able to create my own job description and and my own little niche in that area. Um, and then you know when there were opportunities came up for you know to to work at this club or that club if because I was still getting asked to be head physio or whatever and I said no listen that's not my job like that's um my job is as high performance manager or head of athletic performance um partly because by that stage I'd not got bored of physio but I'd I'd decided that it was it was just it wasn't best suited to me. It was a bit of an abbreviation of what I thought I was capable of and what my, my mission in life was to be. Um, so that, that's kind of how it, how it eventuated. And as, as the years have progressed, there's more and more of these sorts of positions 
uh, opening up, and I'm I'm really pleased to see that the term head of athletic performance is is um, is is commonplace certainly in Australia and the UK. Um, now the second part, um, the the thing that taught me the most about dealing with coaches was working in China because I had twenty odd coaches to deal with, um, but also, well, sorry, coaches of twenty odd sports, but also working in in Turkey, where I just had to influence, 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 as we were discussing earlier. Um, it's a, Again, it gets down to meeting someone where they're at. What, what do they actually really want? They're the, they're the ones that are in the papers every day. They're the ones with their head on the chopping block. They're the ones with the, the biggest ego but the, also the most pressure. They're the ones that tend to be the most insecure. Mm-hmm. And our job, I believe, is to to give them certainty, as much certainty as we can in a very, very uncertain world. <laughs> like there's, there's, very, there's very few things that are as uncertain as a, a sport because, you know, there's the, the complexities involved in, in the health and fitness and well-being of an individual player is huge, almost infinite, and then you you scale that by having a squad of 40 players or whatever it is. And then you're layering in media pressures and pressures from the board and all these sorts of things. The the, the coach just wants to be able to select his best team for them to be fit and to be physically superior to the opposition. Mm. Huge amounts of uncertainty, huge amounts of insecurity. No no wonder they're all lunatics. Um, so I view my job as trying to reduce the, the cost of that insecurity or to reduce the causes of that insecurity. When, when coaches understand that you're actually on their side, you're not trying to reduce their playing time, you, you're actually constructively working with them to improve their stock of players um, once you understand the sport, understand their pressures, people people love being helped. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's beautiful. So, uh, that's that's always been my approach, rightly or wrongly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even if I was to say, if I was to be offered a position um, in American football, and I don't know much about American football, that would be the same approach that I would take compared to the approach that I. I took in Australian rules football, which is, you know, I grew up with it, you know. So um, mm. because sports are different but not as different as people think. Yeah. You're still dealing with humans. You're still dealing with frailties. You're still dealing with insecurities. You're still dealing with complexities. Mm-hmm. So, Human relations puzzle. For I sure. 100%, 100% is. This is a part of my podcast that I do. I discovered a book a number of years ago called The Day You Were Born, and it combines numerology with astrology. So what I found in it was my purpose. And I won't go into the long dog and winding story about it, but it was quite powerful when I read it. So I read everybody's purpose to them. Am I thinking that that was written by another Joyce? Linda Joyce, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you already got that going for you. I'm the, I'm the second Joyce on this podcast. <laughs> what, what, a, what a diaspora we are. <laughs> yeah. So you were an Aquarius too. Mm-hmm. Your purpose is to integrate your extreme nature, which keeps you either isolated and alone or losing yourself in your quest to right injustice and save lost souls. 
Only a life lived in service to others is worth living. Albert Einstein. Loners by heart, Aquarius 2, still manage to do their share of giving. They need to learn to open up a little more and trust their instincts to tell them whom to love, whom to help, and whom to leave alone. They project their own feelings onto the wounded. They need to heal themselves first. Aquarius 2 struggle with mood swings and depression. They are attracted to the eccentric, eccentric and have a strange sense of humor. I've seen that so far already. They are defiant... <laughs> <laughs> they are defiant, a bit rebellious, uh, and very persistent. The danger here lies in attaching themselves to the wrong person. They need to use discrimination before letting their passionate nature rule. They are sensitive and psychic. They need to trust their inner voice and direct their obsessive nature towards something positive. Not sure if any of that resonates. You're actually quite uh, aligned with Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> I got wrong. Yeah, wrong. <laughs> um, uh, so I think there are aspects of that which are accurate. So I've got a very strong sense of justice mm. and that's from um, particularly my, my dad. Um, so I've got a, I, I feel, I feel right and wrong strongly. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm passionate and driven and persistent. So that's, that's accurate. Um, uh, I'm I'm not a loner by nature. I don't think I don't think people would describe me as that because I I think I'm quite I'm, I'm very much a, a relationships sort of person. Hmm. Uh, but there there are aspects of that which are which are probably quite accurate. Yeah. Cool. As you uh, roll into the later. Um, part of your career uh, and you look back at where you were, say, 20 years ago, if you met yourself 20 years ago, what would you say to yourself? Um, stop parting your hair in the middle because it looks stupid. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> uh, what would I say to myself? I can't uh, imagine what you look uh, like with parted hair yeah, in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so what, look, I think for, for a very long time, what I what I thought was I just had to improve myself, and um, and that you know the appropriate jobs and responsibilities would come my way. And so I just and I got increasingly frustrated that there were some really good jobs that were going to people that I thought that. Um, maybe weren't as skilled or weren't as knowledgeable as me, but they just happened to know the right people. Mm. And I thought that that was probably a little bit underhand or or what I, I just I felt it was unjust. There you go. There's the justice side of things coming through. Um, but I also realised at that point. Well, sorry, no, it wasn't at that point, but there was there was something that made me realise that actually knowledge is important, but relationships are importanter. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, I, I felt that networking was a sleazy thing, and um, uh, and and it wasn't it wasn't me, you know. Um, but as soon as I reframed that and actually thought. No, relationships are absolutely the most important thing when it comes to high-performance sport because trust is the number one thing. Um, 
then I reframed about how I would be how I'd be best served by getting you know some some big jobs or, or, or whatever and and I just started trying to to be of greater service to to other people do you know mm-hmm. what I mean rather than just mm-hmm. concentrating on myself um, going right well how, how can I help and 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 in that way how can I how can I get to know more people how can mm-hmm. I get to be on the inside loop of, of things mm-hmm. and what what we see now is that like if I advertise for a for a trainee or an intern, I'm going to have 200 applicants from all over the world. Out of that, they're all going to have pretty similar CVs, you know. And there's this qualification group of people that have, you know, back in in um, when we when we were both young, Scott, there were a, a bachelor's degree was probably enough. But I'm getting people that have got PhDs applying for an internship mm. because they go, you know, they just put qualification on after qualification after qualification. They're going down the same mistake route that I had, which was just, you know, get get narrower, get more niche, you know, someone's going to pick you up because you're going to be just amazing. But actually it, it takes you further away actually mm-hmm. what you need those relationships. So um, I think that's probably what I would say. Now, did, was the way I was going um the wrong way maybe not but if i met myself 20 years ago maybe i could have um had a couple of more fruitful relationships earlier on hmm. what's um what do you consider to be your achilles heel like something that you're good at but it sometimes costs you um probably because i'm a mile wide and an inch deep I've, I think I've probably got a bit of a tendency to stick my oar in when I don't need to. Mm. Um, so that's been a work on for me over over the last few years, um, and it's never been malicious, but it's been um, it's been because I've got a, a wide breadth of experience and 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 knowledge um, that uh, you know may, maybe. Maybe I spread myself a little bit too thin and, and don't and don't need to intervene quite as much as I I do or have done in the past. Has there been a personal cost to being good at what you do? It's funny, because yeah, I've, I've, I'm an avid listener to your your show and have heard you ask that of an, a number of people. And so I was thinking about it today actually when I went for a run, and I actually think my the cost. The cost to me is it gets down to, to energy. Like I'm a high energy person, um, but I'm I'm across so many different buckets that I probably no not probably I've definitely missed out on a little bit of leisure time and a little a little bit of of um, uh, just having fun in areas that are not related to sport. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So. I've not been. Oops, just in a car accident out front. Um, I've not been anywhere. I've not got to be a good skier because you know all my time, my, my time off in professional sport doesn't allow me to go skiing. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Those, those yeah. sorts of things where I look, where I look at some of my friends that are not in the same sorts of roles that I am, and then they've got multiple facets to their to their. Um, 
to their life, whereas I'm probably a little bit more um, sing, single use, if that's such a thing. <laughs> But, but uh, look, I wouldn't be the only person that that's um, uh, you know devoted their life to one particular area. That's 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 not quite as rounded as as some of their their friends. Now I know you know uh, I came upon you through some very good friends of mine who really recommended you as a as a human being and stuff. And it's really through I guess their connection with you at different uh, educational events. What's what are what is your sort of mission of education? What what do you you know what do you want to spread as in terms of a a message to people when you're out speaking at different conferences? Is there a center point for you on that? Um, I think it varies a little bit. It varies depends on where I'm where I'm going. So, for example, I was speaking with um, your good friend Matt Jordan, who, by the way, is one of the people I look up to most highly in our prophetic world, just in my life, actually. Um, and so I was talking a lot about that middle ground of, you know, strength and 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 um, injury and, and, and that stuff um, because I was speaking to coaches that probably weren't as exposed to that. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? That was still in a, very much a siloed approach, whereas most recently I was talking – in a, at a conference in New Zealand, which is a little bit more collaborative and, and integrated with their their high performance structures, um, but I was actually talking about pain mm. because I think that pain is an area that we don't look um, at very well in sport, and it's it's very underexposed. So I could I could talk about. Um, I don't know, periodization or, or things like that. But that stuff is so well covered by people that are way more qualified than me. I, what I, I think I probably try and shine a light on dimly lit corners mm. and what corners are dimly lit will depend on where I'm going. So what mm. I would talk about in New Zealand might be different to what I talk about in, in um, Canada, for example, mm. Or Portugal, or Hungary, or, or where, wherever it is. But I think that's probably my area is is looking at dimly lit corners. <laughs> nice. <clears throat> you uh, last question. You you've heard me talk, ask this one before, probably. But you're 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 going to perish from this earth one day. Hopefully not for a long time. How would you like to be remembered? Ah. Uh... I would like to be the subject of the best ever eulogy. Um, <laughs> um, so my, I used to think that my, my job on this earth was to make other people great, but actually I think that that's arrogant because I can't make other people great. But what I think I can do is I can facilitate other people making them see, seeing the greatness in themselves. Mm. And I've got a strong belief that leaders create leaders. So if if my job on this, sorry, if, if I'm recognised when I die as having a, a great group of people that have learnt from me and I've impacted upon their life and they've gone on to become, to push the boundaries of human performance and they can look back and say that I've played a formative role in that, I'll be absolutely delighted. And, of course, I just want to see my 
my my daughter grow up to be. So I want her to be adventurous, brave, curious, calm, and and kind. And if she does all those things, um, uh, my life won't have been wasted. Awesome. Well, you have lived up to your billing, sir. It's been a pleasure to spend an hour with you. Thanks for taking the time. And uh, hopefully we'll bounce into each other one day and have a beer in a, in a bar or wherever it is or whatever it is that we would imbibe it's, with. So. It's been the greatest of pleasures, Scott. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Thank you. Take care and have a great day. Thank you too. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.